Today's sermon reading comes from Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You have heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for another day that you've given all of us. And I hope that you open our ears and minds to take in the word of Alan today and to apply it to our upcoming week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We are continuing our series through the Sermon on the Mount, and today we come to a PG-13 sermon. Um, I warned some of the parents of the older kids in advance, and if any of you older folks are offended, you can go hang out in the nursery too, I suppose. Um, But today we're going to be talking about adultery and lust and sex, um, because that's what the Bible does. And... You know, what what Jesus has been doing all along through this Sermon on the Mount is he's really been contrasting the the kingdom that he has come to bring about with the kingdom that the religion of the Pharisees had produced. And see, for the Pharisees, their religion was very much like the religion of our day. It It was really primarily focused on an outward show. If you can just look the part, if you can display the right actions by how you live, if you can keep your nose clean, then you'll get both a good reputation with those other people who are trying to live a good life and maybe not succeeding as well as you are. And so look at me, look how good I'm doing. But, but then also the hope is there that you will earn the praise of God along with all the answered prayers and blessed life that you hope go along with it. In essence, their religion was a way of saying, I need to know that I'm okay with God. I need to know that I'm somebody. I need to know that I'm acceptable as a person. And and the way that the Pharisees, these religious leaders, defined that process was they took the laws of God, uh, and they were the real laws of God in most cases. Sometimes they made up extra ones. But what they would do is they would narrow them down to the most manageable proportions possible. And so what we've seen so far is that they took uh, killing for example, and limited it only to the physical act of murder and missed out on all the other implications that it had. And the same thing here with adultery. It's limited in their minds to the the physical act of sex with another person. And all throughout this sermon, Jesus has been saying, no, that's not what the law originally was intended to deal with. The, The laws against killing, for example, were meant to promote life. Not just physical life, but emotional life, relational life, social life, psychological life. It was meant to produce flourishing for everyone to the full. And its command was more than to stop degrading people and tearing them down, but it also extended even to the secret thoughts that you never say out loud. And then it went on, Jesus said, to actually be responsible for producing the opposite, to be creatively proactive in looking for ways to bring life to everyone around you, whether they're friends or foes. 
And so today we come to this section where Jesus once again expands the law that says, you shall not commit adultery. And he includes even the lustful thoughts behind it, as well as reminding us to look for the positive, for the joys and benefits that sex was intended to produce. And see, even though the Pharisees technically were right, the Old Testament was clear that the command was simply, do not commit adultery. Right? There's no denying that. The Pharisees had to put blinders on to ignore the, the fact that just a couple of commands later, uh, he goes on to say, and don't covet, including coveting your neighbor's wife. So clearly indicating the idea that desire was just as important as the action that it produces. Now, because we live in 2023, we have to actually start this sermon where, where I think none of the generations before us had to start. Because really what I want to do is I want to focus our time on just what lust is. What are the negative things we're, that we're supposed to avoid? As well as what lust is not. That is the, the beauty of sex that God gave to us as a gift that we're positively supposed to pursue. And, and we'll get to both of those. But before we can even get there, I think in our current culture, we have to show that such a thing as lust even exists, right? Because what the Bible defines as lust, the world today proudly boasts to be something good. It's, it's self-esteem. It's uh, healthy emotional expression. Uh, it's just being true to yourself. And the guilt and the shame of the very word lust doesn't bring a blush to our world's cheeks anymore as it once did. Because lust is just a concept that I think doesn't even exist in our world anymore. Uh, now, here's the heart, I think, of our struggles here today. On the one hand, no matter how much you run toward sex, it's never enough. It's a bottomless pit that can never be filled. But on the other hand, no matter how much you try to run from sex, you can't seem to be able to avoid it. Uh, because we now live in a sex-obsessed culture. Uh, in fact, I don't know about you, but I've seen massive changes in our culture's attitudes towards sex with each passing year over the last decade. Almost with each passing month, things are changing. I mean, schools are now aggressively teaching uh, children um, uh, and hiding from parents, frankly, uh, giving illustrations and techniques for every form of sex that anyone has ever thought of through the years. And it's, and it's done all in the name of uh, sexual health. I mean, but, but even just a very few short years ago, it was sold as wanting to keep unwanted pregnancies from happening and sexually transmitted diseases. We can focus on that. But listen, even today, that's already gone out the window because more and more the rationale is becoming each person's right to express themselves in emotionally necessary and holistic ways. In other words, it's bad for your emotional health if you don't experience an experiment with every form of sex that there is. That's what's really being taught. And of course, it's hard to even watch a movie these days without seeing nudity and sexuality. Um, even the Super Bowl halftime show was an erotic display of sexuality that has become so common in our culture that most people didn't even notice. I mean, it's amazing how many people responded to, why, why is anybody uptight about this? It's just dancing. It was more than dancing. And so you would expect that what Jesus would say, and, and certainly what I would be telling you uh, here this morning, is that since we live in a culture with too high a view 
of sex that we need to bring it back down and put it in its proper place. Let's rein this stuff in, people. And yet that's not what the Bible teaches, not at all. In fact, what we will see is that the Bible says that our real problem and the source of all of our uh, troubles sexually flow from having too low a view of sex. We've made sex so common and so ordinary that it's lost its significance. In fact, the, the word uh, uh, for hell that Jesus uses here when he says it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell uh, and, and Sam is going to deal with this next week, and I'm going to let him deal with the issue of cutting off body parts to keep our sexual passions in check. Um, when he talks about hell there, he's not using the normal word for hell that you would typically expect. But he's using one that colloquially refers to the dump outside the city boundaries. In other words, what he's saying is that we have such a low view of sex that it's throwing our lives on the trash heap. It's making a dumpster fire out of our lives. And that's not hard to see, obviously. So let, let me just give you a couple examples of how the world has too low a view of sex. Uh, first of all, people will say, and they often do, that sex is just merely an appetite, right? Just like any other appetite. And therefore, it just needs to be satisfied. Um, and it's just as harmful to rob your body of sex when and where and how it wants to as it is to rob your body of food and water. You know, so if you have an itch, then you got to scratch it. It's just another appetite. But that's simply not true. Nobody actually believes that to be true, even though we say it all the time. I mean, let, let me just give you an illustration. Imagine that you... I'm trying to keep all these things within some safe boundaries... Imagine that you text your wife from work and tell her what you had for lunch. And she says, oh, that sounds good. Or maybe at worst she'll say, now, honey, you know you shouldn't eat that. Frenchy fries are not good for you. And you shouldn't do that. But then, now, imagine instead you texted your wife and you tell them, you know, I had sex with somebody else over lunch. Now, their response is not going to be, oh, well, that sounds good. Um, or even, you know, you probably shouldn't do that. It's not good for you. No, when you arrive at home... Your bags are going to be packed and waiting for you on the front porch, and rightly so, because it's obvious to everybody that it's not just another appetite. I mean, it destroys marriages. In fact, it's destroying our kids. Our culture's fascination with making gender dysphoria move from being a mental disease to becoming a beautiful expression of self, it's ruining the lives of our kids. It's leading to greatly increased numbers of suicide, and just confusion about who they are. It's a dumpster fire. I mean, just look at the, what the porn industry has done, both to the subjugation of women as merely play toys for men, that's why it's called Playboy, right? To the growing sex slave trade in order to feed it. In fact, I found that Planned Parenthood is so embarrassed by all of this that they're now promoting a new industry that they call ethically sustainable porn. It, where actors are protected from exploitation so that you can feel, I guess, less guilty about treating women as mere objects for the pleasure of men, I guess. I don't quite understand it. But, but listen, I think we have to be able to say clearly that sexual desire is not just another appetite. It's an obsession that we can never get away from, but it's an obsession that can never satisfy us on its own. But then there's, I think, a second way that people tend to often lower the value of sex today, and that is they say it's just a normal part of life. 
Just, it's just like anything else we do every day. So it's really no big deal. Why are you singling this out and making such a big deal of it? Well, I think it's obvious that it's not just a normal part of everyday life. Let me just give you another example. Let's take pop music, for example. When's the last time that you heard a song um, about how wonderful my job is? Uh, it makes me feel like I'm in heaven, right? When's the last time somebody wrote a song about how their Subaru made them feel like they were just floating through the clouds? I mean, no, songs are written about love and sex, right? And, and you notice that when they do, you simply can't talk about it without breaking in to, to poetry, right? I mean, who, wrote, who writes poetry about their jobs? <laughs> but love and sex all the time. You, you almost have to use spiritual and eternal poetry to describe it. And there's so many examples, and I had to be careful. So I just thought I'd go to the king, Barry White. What did he say? He says, the first, my last, my everything, the answer to... All my dreams, you're my sun, my moon, my guiding star, my kind of wonderful, that's what you are. I mean, have you ever heard of anybody talking about their job like that? <laughs> Where they spend 8 to 12 hours every single day? Nobody talks that way. Or even about the great lunch that they had, or, man, that breakfast burrito, it was awesome. You know, I'm going to write some poetry about it. I mean, no, of course not, because it's clear that love and sex are more than ordinary everyday life things. And, and they have a draw on our life that goes deeper than anything else can. And as a result, in our culture, women are constantly barraged with the need to bolster their physical beauty. They need to have perfectly fit bodies. They need to have perfect breasts. They need to wear makeup to cover over any imperfections because you've gotta be perfect. And men are often addicted to porn that drives them into hiding in deep places of shame because the culture tells them they should be having sexual experiences that no marriage could ever produce. And, and these are the obsess obsessions that drive us and they control our thinking and they control our choices. And Jesus says, unless we can learn to control sex instead of having it control us, our lives are gonna end up on the trash heap and it's gonna be an endless dumpster fire. And you know this from your own personal experience. And I think that's why the Bible says there is such a thing as lust. And, and you know, think about it just as an aside. Where do these obsessions even come from? It, it comes because we were created by God for intimacy with him. And sex was meant to be a picture pointing us to that intimacy, reminding us of the final consummation that's coming that's even greater than this one. I mean, see what you've got to look forward to? It's so much greater. But you see, without God... Sex becomes just a picture without the real thing behind it. And so it becomes a replacement for God. It, it becomes a mini God that we turn to for transcendent experience. And like any picture that you turn to, I mean, it certainly can create longing and desire. I mean, I can look at pictures on my computer of hanging out in Hawaii on the beach. There's lots of desire there, there, it, and it creates beautiful pictures, but I'm not on the beach, right? It's not the real thing. So, I mean, now that we've established that such a thing as lust actually exists, let's get to the real embarrassing part of the sermon. And let's look at what it's not. And that is the positive. What is sex really designed for? Because you'll, you'll notice here that God does not say, hey, it's wrong to have sexual desire. It's dirty. It's base. It's animalistic. I know you got to do it, but 
let's kind of keep it behind closed doors. No, he, he, all he says is it's, it's wrong to look lustfully on another person. Because listen, the Bible does not define lust as sexual desire. Jesus is not saying that sexual desire is bad. In fact, the Bible's view of sex is wildly celebratory and deeply rejoices in it. It, it glories in sexual pleasure so deep that it, it actually would be inappropriate to describe its full pictures here in a mixed audience this morning. I mean, think about this. God actually created sex. I mean, on purpose, right? Genesis chapter one, God created male and female and he blessed it and he said, this is good. Genesis chapter two, God brings Eve to Adam and he immediately breaks into the very first poetry in the Bible, a poetry that all the beauty of creation and all the amazing joys of seeing the entire animal kingdom pass in front of him as he was naming them one after another, even that didn't evoke poetry from Adam. But a naked Eve presented to a naked Adam leads him to break out into rapturous songs of love in the very presence of God. And he says, finally, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now, let me just um, carefully and quickly run just a couple of passages past you to show you the attitude that the Bible takes toward married sex. The book of Song of Solomon is an extended love song filled with a celebration of sexual love between a husband and a wife. Uh, a couple examples in chapter seven, verses one through three, the husband here is looking at his naked wife who's coming to him for sex. And this is what he says. This is actually in the Bible, guys. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. How beautiful you are and how pleasing my love with your delights. Your stature is like that of a palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. I mean, this is not your grandma's prudish Bible, right? Um, and then earlier, uh, the exchange goes like this in chapter five when we see the wife's response to seeing her naked husband coming to her for sex. And this is what she says. His hair is wavy and black as a raven. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. His body is like a polished ivory tusk decorated with jewels. His mouth is sweetness itself. This is my friend. This is my lover. And although the translators are too shy to explicitly say what it actually says, the imagery there insinuates exactly what you think it might mean. Listen, the Bible is filled with deeply intimate pictures of sexual love between a husband and a wife. And on the one hand, it, if sex is just an appetite, what people today refer to as casual sex, it, and it's just a craving that needs to be satisfied, or it's merely a healthy expression that promotes your mental well-being, then, then you're not respecting the power of sex. You have too low a view of sex. I mean, anybody could fill that void for you. Anything could fill that void for you. And everything becomes just an object to use in order to satisfy your longings. There's no beauty in it. There's no power in it. But on the other hand, if you're just embarrassed by married sex and you're not respecting the goodness of sex, and that's still too low a view of sex. 
See, one view doesn't respect the, the power of sex to heal us of our deepest insecurities and fears. And the other doesn't respect the goodness of sex that is to be celebrated and enjoyed because both have too low a view of sex. But Jesus does not say here that sexual desire is bad. He's not saying that looking with joy and satisfaction at your naked spouse is dirty and base and evil. No, God invented sexual desire and he gave it to us as a gift to be enjoyed. In fact, probably more than most of us are actually enjoying. I'll say that for another day. Um, so whatever it is that Jesus is speaking against here with lust, he's certainly not diminishing the beauty and the joy and the power of married sexual love, not at all. So then what is this lust that he is critiquing? You know, see, he's saying, don't just follow your passions and don't squelch your passions either. Rather, the biblical view is to channel your passions properly. I mean, one of the things I heard Tim Keller say once is that lust is inherently impersonal. And I think he's right because it's about consuming. It's not about giving. And, and see, the context for this passage all flows out of verse 20 where Jesus says, guys, your righteousness has to be even greater than these super religious Pharisees. And what he does, he immediately launches into six illustrations. You've heard that it said, don't murder, but I say to you, don't be angry. You've heard that it said, eye for eye, but I say, love your enemies. You've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, don't even look with lust upon another person. And notice that it doesn't say, any man who looks at another woman, as if it only applies to married people, nor does he say anyone who looks at somebody else's wife, as if you're stealing something that belongs to another man. But what he's saying is any man who looks at any woman, any woman who looks at any man, it's 2023, okay, any man who looks lustfully at another man, any woman who looks lustfully at another woman, in fact, anyone who looks at even a digital image of another person, porn, or anyone who even dwells in their mind on sexual encounters with another person, what we call fantasy, is guilty of the same sin of adultery. It is the spirit of adultery. And the bottom line of what Jesus is saying here is that if you want to have sex with somebody that you're not married to, if you want to be physically one with someone that you're not personally one with, you're merely using that person for your own pleasure. And it will bring you into, uh, it'll bring something into your soul that will lead to disintegration into a, a trash heap and a dumpster fire. Listen, the world separates the soul and the body ethically. And, and so you can either have a platonic friendship without the dirty involvement of sex, or you can have the intimacy of sex without needing any kind of personal friendship. But in both cases, what you're saying is, I'm asking you to be completely vulnerable with me for a moment. But I want to hang on to my own life here as we do. I want to enjoy you but remain independent. I don't want to give away any control. See, I want all the enjoyment without any of the cost of losing control. And, and it's actually ironic that both the uptight prudishness about sex as, as well as the absolute free sexual expression views share the same bottom line that says, I want a part of you, but I don't want all of you. I want to enjoy you, I want to use you, but I want to hang on to my own independence. But you see, for the Bible, there's a completely different understanding here because the Bible never allows us to separate body and soul. 
I mean, that's why Jesus says elsewhere that it's unthinkable that you would bind yourself to a prostitute because then you'd be bound to them without actually being bound. And you're not designed to work that way. You know, this is one of the reasons why porn is so destructive. It, it rips the person apart into a body and soul, something God says you were never designed to be, and so it creates a dumpster fire. But listen, the opposite is just as true as well because proper biblical sexual love can be incredibly healing if it represents and solidifies what is already happening in your home. Listen, th this is how sex is supposed to work. Uncovering your deepest self and your deepest fears and your deepest insecurities, holding nothing back from any part of you, your body, your soul, your passions, your fears, your, your past brokenness, your phobias. See, in marriage, you're not holding back anything that is unexposed, not just physically. Married love uh, doesn't have any kind of boundaries to say, you can't have that part of my life. And, and this is why it pictures our spiritual relationship with God. See, that's what it's pointing toward, where we are totally exposed before God. We're exposed to the very bottom of our souls, and yet we're found to be accepted. And when you can mimic that pattern as a regular rhythm in the context of a solid commitment of marriage and find in that vulnerable place a tenderness and an acceptance as your spouse does the very same thing with you, that process is far more thrilling and far more satisfying than the sexual act itself. Because when you view sex that way, you're not just tenderly touching another person's body for sexual pleasure, you're also caressing each other's souls, your deepest self. It's exposed, it's vulnerable, and so is your spouse's. And the acceptance and the unconditional love that happens in that kind of context can heal anything. You know, everybody your whole life could tell you that you're an ugly loser, but if your spouse looks at you and says you're beautiful, you're gonna feel beautiful, right? And, and if everybody your whole life said, you're just great and wonderful and beautiful, but your spouse says, you know, I think you're ugly and I'm tired of you, you're going to feel ugly. There's an incredible power that marriage has to speak over each other's hearts and to bring a, a, a level of healing that is almost unimaginable. There's incredible power to it. And anytime you engage in sex with another person, whether it's with another person physically or with the image of another person through porn or even through your own imaginations in your mind with fantasy, it's proclaiming a total acceptance that has all these strings attached. And that's something that we were just not designed for. And it robs sexual intimacy of its power to heal the deep insecurities of the heart. In fact, in reality, it begins to work the other way around. It only deepens your insecurities. It grows your insecurities as you begin to worry about performance and body acceptance and rejection and, and just the shame of having to hide it all. And, and listen, I, I can promise you this. I want young married couples, I want you to listen to this. The, the more that you can embrace this biblical definition of sex, the better and better sex will become over the course of your life. Even as your body gets uglier and droopier and your youthful performance begins to drop off, the sexual act becomes almost, almost a sacrament, a, a regular reenactment of the greatest sacrament of all, that Jesus' death for us that brings us total acceptance in the midst of our absolute vulnerability. See, sex is an outward sign of an inward reality. And God invented sex 
as a way for one person to say to another person, I belong to you completely, exclusively, permanently, and it's always pointing us even further and even deeper to the ultimate perfect consummation that awaits for us with our perfect spouse, Jesus. But again, the opposite is just as true. The more that you use sex for your own recreation, the more you use it for your own personal satisfaction, Jesus says it will begin to do the opposite. Rather than pulling you together and giving you a deep sense of security and filling you with a reassuring love, it'll tear you apart. And it will actually weaken your ability to find security and absolute acceptance. You'll become radically insecure and radically unloved. And therefore, lust is impersonal. Because apart from this biblical view, sex is completely about you. And that other person is merely a necessary commodity to be used and exchanged. And you're dehumanizing that person. And they're dehumanizing you. And rather than feeling more and more loved, you'll begin to feel less and less. Sex will make you begin to feel dirty. Because deep in your heart, you'll know that you're simply callously and selfishly using another person for your own pleasure. And you'll find when you do that, you're in need of more and more sex and even greater experiences to give you even a brief moment of temporary satisfaction until, like any addiction, it eventually consumes you. So that's the first thing that lust actually is. It is impersonal. But secondly, I think, as Sam mentioned earlier, lust is also <clears throat> an inordinate desire, an over-desire, a, a desire that's out of control. Uh, if you were... Here, when we work through our, our way through the book of Galatians, you remember that one of, one of the key principles that we learn there is that Paul describes sins not as bad things that we do. The, the bad things that we do are really just the fruit of sin, the expression of sin. But the core of what makes sin a sin is that we take something good, something necessary, even something beautiful and right, and then we desire it out of all proportion to what's good for us. And so, for example, let's say you want your kids to succeed in life. That's great. But if you need them to succeed, you will push them away with too much pressure. You'll be that parent on the sidelines screaming and yelling because your, your, your kid has to be the best and the greatest. Right? If, if you're somebody who just needs to be liked by other people, but it becomes an over-desire, you'll become a clingy leech that drives people away from you. It's like, oh, go away. I, I don't want to be around you. And see, Jesus here takes the very same word for lust that Paul uses. There's a number of words that he could have used to describe lust, but he chooses one that's actually rarely associated with sexual lust to remind us, I think, that the heart of our sexual dysfunction is when we take the good aspects of sex and make them our ultimate thing. It becomes our God. It becomes an end in itself. And this word for over-desire means to take something that's good and try to get out of it something that only God can ever give you. And you continue to cram more and more and more of it in until it begins to consume you and it kills you. And that explains why sex has such a power in our hearts and such a grip on our culture. We're obsessed by it, right? We don't just enjoy it like a great lunch. We need it. We're, we're driven by it because we're trying to get something out of it that only God could ever give. And listen, we've outlined the ways that the world has disintegrated over this. We talked about this in previous weeks, moving from porn to homosexuality to same-sex marriage to being able to choose your own gender, 
to transgender experimentation, to actively teaching our kids how to engage in all these dysfunctions. And we can blame the world out there and we come up with all sorts of um, pointing fingers at them. But I want you to understand this, that just like the Pharisee, you don't have to be a pagan who's pursuing your own sexual experimentation to be dysfunctional. You, you can keep your life inside all the lines of traditional Christianity and never commit adultery, at least not physically, and never have sex before marriage. You can keep yourself as pure as possible and still be consumed by these very same things. I mean, what is an addiction to porn but an over-desire that promises life while creating death? And I don't know how many marriages I've counseled over the years where, you know, most often the wife, uh, you know, I'll find out in, in talking with them, was looking for some handsome prince to come and sweep her off her feet and give her all the love and security that she'd always longed for, to provide her maybe with the perfect family that would fill out her dreams, saying to herself, if I could just have that perfect family, if I could just have this perfect husband, then I'll know that I'm somebody. Go back and read the story of Rachel and Leah. It doesn't work. And then there's the disillusionment of the husbands who married these sexy women in hopes that they could satisfy uh, their every urge and desire, um, whose wives are now so busy with kids and tired at the end of the day, they don't even want to think about sex. Just get away from me, right? And to the degree that we place these over-desires on a marriage, you're going to have problems in your relationship. And your sex life is going to be frustrating. And you're going to be constantly disappointed and disillusioned. Because that perfect body is always out of reach, right? That perfect spouse does not exist. That, that perfect spiritual life does not exist. Because you're looking to something to provide what it never can. Only God can. And, and, and what these things do is they keep you from seeing who the real lover of your soul actually is. Because until God is the lover of your soul, you're not fit to be the lover of anybody else. Because you will still try, be trying to get out of romantic love something that only God can ever give you. A deep acceptance, an unshakable value, even an adoration. And see, that this is one of our problems is we really do think that sex will heal us. We think that we can find somebody who will bring us all the security and all the acceptance acceptance that we've longed to hear our entire lives. And, and, and especially if I can find a really beautiful person who thinks I'm beautiful, then I must be beautiful, right? And Jesus here is saying that only one person is actually beautiful enough to make his love for you turn you into somebody beautiful. Nobody else can do that. Not even a really, really good spouse. Because the best a person can do is to point you to the one who truly can do it. And if you look anywhere else for this sort of validation, it's going to distort your life and it'll start a dumpster fire because it's not sex even with the other person that's the core problem. It's the over-desired belief that this can heal me, that they can be my savior, that they're going to fix all of my problems. Listen, the best married sex in the world is merely a signpost pointing beyond itself. And if you don't see what it's pointing to, you're going to make a mess of your life. Now, <clears throat> We should end here, it's time, but I'm not going to, because we can't end without asking, how do we get healed? How do we get out of this mess? How do we put the dumpster fire out? Because nobody wants to be stuck here. And the answer comes in simply saying that Jesus is your ultimate bridegroom who passionately pursues you and he covers your nakedness with his righteousness. 
so that you can be a ravishing beauty. That's the gospel in a heartbeat. I mean, of course, Jesus is our king, and therefore he needs to be obeyed. And in many ways, that's the only version of God we have in Appalachia. He's a king. You've got to worship him, keep your nose clean. But there's no way to know you've ever actually done enough. Have I obeyed enough? Have I obeyed purely enough? And you're living with anxiety all the time. But when Jesus claims to be your bridegroom, when he claims to be your lover, listen, you and I need more than a king to be saved. We need a lover who pursues us who actually has the power to make us into the beauty we always hope that our spouses or some sexual encounters could produce. Listen, I've, I've had the privilege of standing at the top of a lot of wedding aisles down through the years. I get a view that most people never get. Most of you get it once, right? And I've never yet seen a groom watching his bride come down the aisle, scanning the audience to see if there's somebody more beautiful out there. Never right? Because he's overcome with her beauty. His, his breath is taken away. He's often in tears. And until you know that you have a God who sees you like that, you will never be able to get past your over-desires. Because you see, this is what will heal you. And you will finally be able to, to pull sex out of the selfish gutter of using people to comfort your lonely heart. And you'll finally be able to enjoy it for the power and the goodness and the beauty that it offers. Uh, and because of that, I think it's a picture that Jesus says that you need to remind each other of often so that you don't forget. Listen, if you don't know this, your sex life is going to be filled with stress and hurtful misunderstanding. And your addictions to porn and crafting the perfect body will slowly undermine your value and force you to settle for faint whispers of love and acceptance that get harder and harder to hear over time. Your lover was stripped naked for you on the cross, and he actually stayed put out of love for you. And the more that you can see that kind of love, the more sex will become a picture of that. Whether it's a supernatural delight you get almost every night, to quote songs from my era, or whether it's something you're saving yourself to experience in the context of a committed marriage relationship one day in the future, your sex will not own you, and it won't define you. And you won't look for it to satisfy something that only God can satisfy. Now, there are all sorts of practical things that you can do in addition to preaching the gospel to your heart. Sam is going to walk you through some of them next week when he talks about plucking out your eye and, and cutting off your hand. And so there's going to be a lot of practical details to that. And I don't want to, I'm not going to spend any time on that since he's going to do that. But let me just end with this. Singles, let me give you something because you thought this doesn't apply to me at all. All right. Even the best marriages in the world are never enough to fully satisfy your heart. And I know when you're single, that's what you think. Oh, man, when I get that spouse, everything's going to be perfect and I'm going to be loved. No, no. <laughs> They're still lacking, even the best ones. Only your bridegroom can truly satisfy. And, and, and if you remember that, it makes your singleness and your waiting a, a, a little bit easier. But singles, let me give you one other application here. I, I know that, because I was a single once, you tend to walk into a room and you evaluate everybody's there on sexual appeal, right? Which ones are kind of my vibe? I like these kind of people. And you'll eliminate 80% of the people in the room and then try to find out, now that they're you know, good looking, I wonder if we could be friends. And I think we get that backwards. And I think for singles, you can, you can eliminate so many prospects because you're looking at life the way the world defines how you look at life, through sexual attraction, through the externals. 
and we're not starting with where the Bible starts in terms of a deep, true friendship. So don't let the world's definition of marriage box you in by only looking for really good mates and then asking if they might be capable of a long-term lifetime friendship. That's backwards. All right, husbands, let me give you this. You'll never be a good groom until you're a good bride to Jesus. Too many of us men are driven by power and control and sexual dominance and, and we try to satisfy the deep needs and longings of our heart with powerful jobs and, and controlling people and lots and lots of sex. And, and part of our process of healing is learning to come under his power, learning to submit to him so that we can be a servant leader to our wives instead of a dominant one. And until you're a good, submissive wife to Jesus, you'll never be a good husband to your wife. Wives, your beauty is not found in how you look, your sex appeal, your perfect body, or pleasing your husband, or even having children. And, and listen, I know, wives, that you thought of this because I hear this all the time, but it's true. You're often thinking, you know, I need a better husband than the one that I've got. Every wife thinks that. And, and the good news is you've got him in Jesus. <laughs> you actually have him there. And listen, you're going to be a lousy wife to your husband until you have, you're a great bride to Jesus. Otherwise, you'll be trying to suck out of your husband what only Jesus can provide for your heart. Sex is an incredibly powerful pointer that can heal our deepest insecurities. But as an end in itself, it will destroy and it will corrupt and it will tear apart. Don't just follow your passions blindly and don't squelch your passions either. Rather, channel your passions properly as a pointer within marriage that are designed to keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, this is a hard subject for us to talk about uh, because we know how passionate it is and we also know uh, what a, a littered mess that we've often made of our lives uh, because these passions are frankly over desires and it's gotten us into trouble. Uh, and I pray, Lord, that you would help for us to understand what it means to find our healing in Jesus that you are our perfect bridegroom. Pray that you would help for us to see that our, our desires and our passions beneath sex are just way, way, way too small, but that we need to understand that the deep exposure that goes far beyond the physical of opening up our souls and our fears and our hearts uh, to our spouses and finding their love and acceptance that mirrors and pictures the even deeper acceptance that we have from you. Lord, I pray that you would help for us to remember this so that in our sexual relationships, it really does become a sacrament. We pray this in Jesus' name.